to be in a house. He was under house arrest. He actually was renting uh, for about two years, it turned out, in Rome. Uh, however, he was chained 24-7 to a guard at any one given time. So he was, he was in a better state than most prisons he'd been in. However, he was still imprisoned and still in many ways suffering for the sake of Christ. Just to recap, if you weren't here last Sunday, um, the background of the Philippian church, it was a church started by Paul uh, when he and Silas travelled there. We can read about it in Acts chapter 16. Uh, you remember the three sort of first converts or amongst the first converts are recorded for us in Acts 16. Lydia, a successful uh, businesswoman, wealthy businesswoman, uh, and then a, a slave girl who was demon-possessed and uh, she was released and freed from that uh, that possession and as a result those who owned her lost money uh, the gospel affects the economy there sometimes positively sometimes negatively and uh, and so a um, a crowd formed and there was a riot that took place and uh, Paul and Silas were beaten in the marketplace as a result uh, and yet as they were beaten they were praising God they were praising God for what he was doing and so they're thrown into a prison in Philippi and they're continuing to praise God. And they're singing praises and songs to God in the midst of this horrible prison after a beating. And uh, an amazing thing happens. God shakes the earth. Uh, the area is known and still known for uh, significant and often uh, regular earthquakes. But the Lord uh, is behind all of those. Um, and he, he shook the earth and he released Paul and Silas and every other prisoner from the prison. And you remember the, uh, the jailer there uh, goes to, uh, to take his own life, fearful that um, as a result of losing the guards under his, losing the prisoners under his guard, he would be put to death. Uh, and so Paul yells out and he says, stop, stop, don't do it. And the jailer, we read in Acts 16, turns and asks, Paul, what must I do to be saved? And he hears the gospel and his whole household hears the gospel and he is baptised together with his whole, uh, his whole household after they accepted salvation through Jesus Christ. That's the background. Um, Paul loves this church. He was there right at the start. Paul loves this church and they loved Paul. And they formed soon after he and Silas had been there. Now years later he writes to them as a prisoner yet again in Rome. You see Philippians, if we were to summarise the whole book, the whole letter is all about Jesus. And I know some of you may think, oh, the whole Bible's all about Jesus. Absolutely, that's exactly what the whole Bible is about. Um, one, one man, uh, Harry Ironside, says this about the book of Philippians. He says that uh, Christ is all. And he's, he summarised each chapter. Chapter 1, uh, we discover um, that Christ is life. Uh, chapter 2, Christ is our example. This is what we'll be getting to in a few weeks' time. Chapter 3, Christ is our object. Chapter 4, Christ is our strength and our provision. So this book uh, of the Bible is all about Christ. But here's what we're looking at this morning. The reality is that to be all about Christ and to follow Jesus Christ as Lord means that we are going to be experiencing lives marked with suffering. There's no way around it. At some point in your life, at the very least... And no sooner has Paul prayed for this church, this passionate prayer at the beginning there of chapter 1, um, that he's quick to point out that once again, he finds himself in a position of suffering. That he again is suffering for the sake of following Jesus Christ. Um, we'll hear a little bit later on um, that the Philippians are also suffering. Um, there's a lot of hostility in the society in which they live towards them. But the reality is that for all of 
God's faithful followers of Christ right throughout the centuries, it doesn't matter where we live, um, suffering is part of what it means to faithfully follow Jesus. Uh, there's a distinction between suffering from our own stupidity, um, our own poor choices, our own desire to live in our own strength, uh, what we might summarise as, uh, as sin, um, and something that we all struggle with. But this is not a very popular thing that's taught about following Jesus in our part of the world. Um, very rarely do we hear confident sermons where we're told from Scripture and encouraged again that we're going to be suffering for Christ and that if you are suffering for Christ, it's actually all part of God's plan and purpose for you. We don't, we don't really hear that, do we? Instead, we are people who expect the opposite for the most part. And that's the message, that's probably the more popular message that's preached today. Instead of expecting suffering and hardship as we seek first God's kingdom, we're told to expect prosperity and comfort. Yet this is not the reality or the truth of what it means to follow Jesus. Um, and how we know this is not only from Paul's example, but from Jesus' life and also his explicit teaching directly to his disciples in John chapter 15. He reminds them, John 15, 18 to 20, he reminds them that to follow Jesus, they are going to be hated in this world. They are going to be persecuted for his sake. And he says, I'm hated in this world. I'm persecuted. What makes you think following me is going to make it any different for you? That's my paraphrase, not directly John 15, 18 to 20, but you can look it up. So when suffering and hardship happens as a result of faithfully following Jesus, we oughtn't at all be surprised. Instead, uh, we find throughout the scriptures that we can actually be joyful, not just put up with it, not just tolerate it, not just sort of pretend it's not really happening, not even just accept it. We can actually go one step further and be joyful in the midst of it. I want to say this morning that this is not a natural response. This is not a natural response to those sorts of things that we suffer from as a result of following Jesus in our life. It's a supernatural response. I want to make this really clear this morning that this will not make a lot of sense to those who are outside of Christ. If you don't have the spirit of Christ living in you, then you cannot possibly expect to find joy in the midst of suffering. You won't find it. You'll find entertainment and distractions. You'll find a whole lot of positive talk that'll keep your mind off the suffering. But without the Spirit of Christ, you won't find that deep-seated joy that the disciples and the Apostle Paul finds. And we don't like this unpopular biblical teaching, and I suspect, and I include myself in this, because deep down, we actually expect not to suffer for following Christ, do we? If we're honest. We actually love the victory bit. We expect victory. And for us, in our worldly way of thinking, victory means success, it means prosperity. It doesn't mean prosecution or suffering, persecution or suffering. Um, think about one of the most popular and most common expressions of what it means to be a Christian today. If we were to summarise it, what's the first thing that comes to mind? This is what the first thing that came to my mind. It's pretty much mostly about personal improvement, personal well-being, personal betterment. It's all about uh, being blessed by God in a positive and uplifting way. It's about getting blessed by having our prayer lists answered, always positively and in our favour. Think about some of the things that you and I together are often guilty of praying for. Um, a new job, a new house, perhaps just a house uh, to begin with. Um, another car, maybe a better car, maybe a job promotion, maybe for a family to like us more and to get on better. 
whatever it is that we tend to pray for, it's usually, usually ourselves and it's usually to improve something. Now, don't get me wrong, God is with us in the midst of these things and he says, bring your prayers and petitions to me. Come to me in prayer. Ask uh, and you will receive. But think about how our prayers sometimes reflect our view of suffering and our view of blessing in the Christian life. Well, it takes a supernatural work of the Spirit within us to accept suffering and hardship in so much of our faithful following of Jesus in this life and to be joyful even in the midst of it. And what we get from these few verses in the middle of chapter 1 of Philippians this morning is exactly that which Paul is trying to get across to the Philippian church and to us as a church today. How should we respond and endure the difficulties and the challenges that following Christ will bring in this life? Uh, In Paul's example, we're going to see what the Lord is doing through Paul's difficulties that he's experienced and how God is glorified in the midst of it. Uh, I'm going to read the reading. Um, If you've got your Bibles, please turn them uh, to Philippians chapter 1. It's just a few short verses this morning, verses 12 to 18. We'll read them through and uh, you can follow along on the screen or in your own Bibles um, if you would. Let's, Let's read it together. Paul says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard And to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defence of the gospel. The former... They preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in change. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. There's the joy. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. So picture Paul chained because of the gospel of Christ, chained to a guard. And he wants these dear Philippian brothers and sisters to know that his circumstances had actually turned out for the greater good of the gospel. He hadn't hit a roadblock, as many of them most likely would have thought. Imagine you get that sort of bad news. (gasps) Paul's in prison again. Oh, no. But he hasn't hit a roadblock. His life's mission and purpose hasn't been derailed by yet another imprisonment. God wasn't punishing him or abandoning him. There's no existential crisis here that we can see. Um, The gospel certainly wasn't hindered, as we'll see in a moment, but in God's sovereign plan, in God's big picture view and participation in this world, what was happening to Paul is exactly what God had planned and desired for it to happen. So obviously Paul has a very different view of his circumstances in prison to what perhaps many of us and perhaps most of us might have today to such sort of news. It's, it's a new understanding of life which redefines what should and can be rejoiced in. And so that even when um, he's rejected by his own society, as Paul was, even when he's in prison in chains um, or even in house arrest, even when fellow Christians are trying to make it harder for him to preach the gospel faithfully, even when he's facing imminent death at any moment, 
Think of how hypervigilant Paul must have been. The anxiety levels Paul must have lived with, knowing that death was just around the corner at any moment. Even when he can write to the Christians in Philippi and he can say this, even in the midst of that, hey, don't worry about me. Don't worry about me. I'm actually rejoicing in these circumstances. I'm thriving in life here. I'm in no better place than chained up right now. You can imagine if he could expound more and is more verbose like modern day preachers, um, maybe he would have gone on and said, you know what, I'm renting, I'm not in a prison cell anymore. Uh, the guards, they change every few hours. I'm getting to know them, making new friends. I can still make a cup of tea. I can drag them around and sit over here. It's not that bad. I don't know about you, but don't you wish you could have that kind of response in the midst of whatever suffering and hardship and challenges, challenging circumstances you're going through. Can you imagine having that attitude towards suffering in life as a Christian? Maybe you do, and I know and can think of several, many amongst us who have that and who express that and who are just bursting with that joy, often through tears, in the midst of suffering and challenges in their lives. Well, how do we get such strong faith? If you're wondering, well, I'd like that, and perhaps I need it, how do we get that deep, confident sense of joy in the midst of our suffering? Well, Paul's life uh, in itself and in these few verses is a great example. You see, Paul's whole life was focused around the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no other way around it. This is what defined his life. And it's out of this commitment, it's out of this passion, it's out of this core belief at his very, very heart that infuses everything in his life. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. His whole passion is to live for Jesus. Jesus is all that matters to him. And, and, and in any circumstances, it's always about how can I continue to bear witness to and proclaim, in Paul's case, proclaim and preach this good news. That's Paul's idea of a life well lived. Which, when you think about it, it means no matter what happens to him, nothing actually matters. Nothing really matters. It's a win-win situation, as we'll hear about in next Sunday's passage. Can you see here in verse 12 of chapter 1, Paul says this, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what's happening to me, that is all these horrible things that look terrible, they've actually happened to serve to advance the gospel. See how he's, he's put his life's goal and focus is at the centre of everything, and that's how he interprets everything that's happened to him. The horrible circumstances of imprisonment and everything else that have happened. He's been shipwrecked and beaten and everything. Now, all these things along the ways have helped to spread the good news of Jesus and that gives Paul great joy. It's about priority, isn't it? Not his, not his betterment, not his own personal situation, not how he feels at all comes into this. The joy comes from the fact that Jesus is being proclaimed, that the good news of him continues to go forward. That's Paul's secret to a joyful life in the midst of suffering. And I know it's the secret of those that you may be thinking of in and amongst this church or other churches or in your Christian circles that you know have that same joy. You ask them and they'll tell you in their own words that it's because of the joy of Jesus that lives in them and the opportunities that they see of Jesus and his message and his kingdom going forward. That's the secret. Well, uh, there are uh, just three ways that this happened um, for Paul um, in, and what encouraged Paul and what he shares with the Philippians in these few verses. The first one is this, that the gospel was preached inside prison. The gospel was preached inside, inside prison. Look at what's happening as a direct result of his imprisonment there in verse 13. Because Paul's in prison, even his guards now get to hear 
the good news of Jesus. They see that he's chained, but they don't see and hear anything about what he's done to be chained. They don't realise that he's been chained for something bad. They quickly realise that he hasn't done much other than proclaim this really positive, good news message of salvation through Christ. Um, he's not chained because of political dissent. In fact, a couple of times they found that he was actually a Roman citizen and they went, whoops, we've imprisoned the Roman citizen. Um, he's not in prison for violence. He's not even in prison for inciting violence. His own guards are starting to get a better understanding of the gospel, just purely on the fact that they know it's the preaching of this message that has landed Paul uh, to be placed in their guard. Now, the, the passage there uh, talks about the Praetorian Guard, and it's really interesting to know who they are. Who is this Praetorian Guard? Here's the fascinating bit. This is why we're pretty convinced Paul was in Rome when he was under house arrest at this time, uh, around uh, 62, uh, between 60 and 62 AD. The Praetorian Guard are most likely the Roman emperor's personal bodyguards. Um, they actually consist of several thousand elite Roman soldiers. And they're stationed right throughout the, the Roman Empire at different um, residential places or palaces or homes where um, the emperor would travel to, 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 to do things, to be the emperor. And Paul has been guarded by them. And, and we see ultimately that the gospel has gone forth to this whole Praetorian Guard. That's what the passage says. The whole Praetorian Guard now knows of the gospel, which is amazing when you think about it. That could well have been thousands of people influenced for the gospel and from what we know about his imprisonment from Acts chapter 28 if you look uh, there later on as, as to what it, what, it was, what it was like for him in Acts chapter 28 at the time of writing Philippians we know that he was chained to one of these guards 24-7 and historically they would rotate the guards um, every four to six hours so think about it every four to six hours another guard comes unchains his mate and chains himself to Paul that's about four or six guards per day for two years around the clock. And although Paul's in chains, they didn't have access to duct tape. So Paul had the freedom to share the gospel unhindered. And let's face it, he's in his own rented home with them. They're guests in his home. In fact, it was well known that he had other guests come and visit uh, while he was in this kind of semi-privileged imprisonment. Um, one pastor puts it this way, his name's Will Pound, um, I got it from a quote from someone else. I, I don't even know who Will Pound is, but this is the man who wrote it. It wasn't me. Um, and he says this imaginatively about this situation. He says, for a two-year period, Paul's congregation was a constant rotation of the finest regiment in the Roman army. Only eternity will tell us how many of these men came to know Christ as their personal saviour. What a transformation of the elite. Well, what was your assignment today? Man, I was chained to that little Jew from Tarsus. Everyone's talking about him. And all he does is talk about another Jew who was crucified and rose from the dead. He says he's alive. Now, you and I know no one survives Romanic crucifixion. We do it really well. Yet this Paul dictates letters to be sent out to these groups all over the empire telling people about the resurrection of this Jew from the dead. People come to see him and all he talks about is Jesus Christ. And man, he prays for hours talking to, his God, to this God-man who rose from the dead. He just will not shut up about it. What an opportunity. The gospel is preached inside prison. The second thing is the gospel is preached also outside of prison. Have a look at verse 14. Because of Paul's chains in prison, 
and how he's handling it, other Christians now proclaim Jesus outside of prison even more so. His imprisonment's motivating them. It's like everyone else outside of Paul's situation see, see that their worst fear or the worst potential fear for themselves happening not to them but to him. They face rejection by their society but they still see what's happening to Paul and that it's happening to him as well. Yet he's still rejoicing in Jesus. Um, they can see it's actually not as bad as perhaps they'd feared that for Paul to be able to write the way he does, for Paul to be so expressive in his deep-seated joy despite his circumstances. Uh, even when the worst happens, life with Jesus goes on. That's what they see. And now they preach Jesus with confidence and not fear. And what's amazing is verse 14 tells us that they do this despite Paul's chains, uh, not despite Paul's chains, but because of the very chains that Paul's in. It's exactly because Paul is chained up that the gospel is preached more boldly that more people outside of prison are hearing the message of Jesus. Well, there's a third thing happening here too to make Paul joyful. And that's this, the gospel is preached even despite wrong motives. Paul says in verse 15, sure, some of the preaching happening outside of my imprisonment is happening by people uh, and they're doing it out of envy and they're doing it out of selfish ambition. And he goes on and explains it a little bit in verses 16, 17. Then he says this in verse 18. He says, but so what? So what? So what if they're climbing the ranks and that's their goal for life, if that's what they think is important, if that's what makes them joyful, popularity or whatever it might have been, um, I'm sure it was a sense of um, despising of Paul. Paul always ends up in prison. He's meant to be this wonderful apostle, yet he's always locked up, well, you know, Think about it, if all your pastors were being locked up, in most parts of the world that's fairly normal for Christians. Um, in our part of the world, um, we'd be horrified. Oh, what's he done? You know, you, you, he'd get no one visiting him at all, I suspect. Um, but you see the difference? This is probably happening in Paul's day. Paul's in prison, they look down upon him. He's always struggling, always struggling and running around the place. And you, know, you can imagine them saying he doesn't even commit to a local church, he's sort of everywhere, flittering around the countryside. Um, and Paul says, well, that's fine. I'm sure this is what he says about them. You know, you big-named ministries with your international gigs, perhaps, or those with huge global reach and impact on the big stage, you've never done anything wrong and squeaky clean testimony. I, I don't know, I'm, 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 I'm hypothesising here, aren't I? Well, Paul's in prison saying, well, that's not my thing. He's saying, it's not something I can do while I'm here in chains. But he's discerned their motives, hasn't he? And whatever it was, uh, Paul still says it doesn't matter. Uh, what's important to note is they weren't preaching a false gospel. If they were preaching a false gospel, Paul would have made that very clear. He makes it clear uh, when he hears a false gospel. Uh, he articulates it and he names them and he condemns them very, very clearly. Uh, these ones with the bad motives aren't necessarily preaching the wrong message. They're just doing so for the wrong reasons. Verse 18, the important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, that Christ is preached. And because of this, he says, I rejoice. Yes, that's why I rejoice. Nothing else matters. Paul doesn't concern himself with the motives of others preaching and proclaiming the gospel. They're giving him a hard time for whatever reason. And Paul says, well, uh, I have so much confidence in the risen Jesus Christ. I have so much confidence that this is the only 
only way for people to be saved, to know true fulfilment in this life and in the life to come, to know forgiveness of sins and relationship with their creator. I'm so convinced of this that even if you're doing it out of selfish ambition or impure motives, yay, go and preach. Preach the good news of Jesus. You see, the gospel of Jesus is the power of God, isn't it, that Paul talks about in Romans 1.16. He said it's the power of God for salvation, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And it's God's message. It's God's saving, powerful message of redemption from sin and of new life that comes through the death, burial, resurrection and glorification of Christ. And so there's two things as we close that we need to know about this gospel, which Paul knew and believed confidently. The first one is this, it's unstoppable. Uh, unlike this sermon, it will finish. Uh, it's unstoppable, this gospel, um, because God is in control. Just think about the Roman Empire and how powerful it was. In fact, it's still to this day one of the largest, uh, in different ways, the largest uh, human empire uh, that's ever ruled and reigned on earth uh, in, in different areas, different ways. But you notice how this massive empire the most impressive empire, do you notice they try and stop the gospel being preached right at the start? They try and snuff it out. They spend 300 years trying to snuff it out. But they didn't achieve it, did they? It didn't happen. In fact, the Roman Empire doesn't stand to this day. And empires have come and gone and they've raised and they've tried to snuff it out and it never happens. Um, they chained up Paul at the time. Everyone would have thought, he's the best preacher, our best church planner, our much-loved Paul. It's over. He's in prison. The gospel stops. It's, it's, it's imprisoned. It's chained up along with Paul. But instead, many people outside of prison, or those not yet locked up and persecuted, go on preaching Jesus instead. You see, it's unstoppable. It's unstoppable despite humankind's best efforts. And Jesus will turn even the worst circumstances into ultimate good for his glory. Of course, we see that still today in our world, don't we? Uh, Joanne's prayer reminded us of it again. Guess where the fastest growth of church growth is happening? All around the world. It's not here. It's not where we've got all the resources. It's not with all our relative security and um, permission to preach boldly like this. It's in places like China, isn't it? The Middle East, South Korea, across the African continent, South America. It's where Christians are most persecuted and the gospel is most silenced by government. Governments. You know, on the one hand, we hear of these crosses being destroyed and churches and pastors arrested in China. And we, we look upon it with pity, don't we? We go, oh, Lord, please stop it. Put the crosses back up and reappoint the pastors. I think we need to pray differently, don't we? I think we need to pray differently. The Open Doors Ministry helps us with that, to see uh, that they don't need our pity. Uh, we can actually learn from their example in seeing the gospel thrive and grow, even in the midst, and especially when persecution happens. The gospel is unstoppable. Secondly, the gospel is eternal in the life to come. And, you know, for Paul facing death at, 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 at any moment on a daily basis... Um, I guess it makes you think when you're in prison, doesn't it? It gives you time to think about death. And uh, it's only ever just around the corner for him. But as he thinks about death, he sees that with Jesus, even death isn't a loss, it's a gain. As we'll hear looking ahead uh, from verses 21 and 23, and we'll see that next Sunday. If you make Jesus your life, if you make the gospel 
mission, your goal and focus in this life? Well, he's the only person and his is the only purpose that won't fail you in the end. The gospel is unstoppable and it's eternal. I don't know what uh, circumstances you're suffering or being challenged with uh, in your life as a Christian today. I know some of what some of you are experiencing, um, but I don't know what everyone is. Um, and it might be difficult uh, to work out and discern what's, what's self-inflicted, what's, what's uh, you know, from poor choices, or what is as a direct result of, of following Christ, or what is something you're in the middle of that you have no power over. It might be in the workplace, it might be uh, with a work colleague or a boss, uh, it might be in, in a family situation. Uh, mums and dads, maybe um, it's that stage of life, you know, where the kids are just wearing you down and you, you just think, is there any hope? To, am I ever going to get through this? Um, they take your time and your energy and your effort and you're flat out trying to stay on top of things. Perhaps it's a set of family relationships that um, are a thorn in your side, relational breakdown, whatever it is. Can I say this morning on the authority of God's word that God knows you're in those and he actually can and will and wants to use them to better his and put forward his gospel, his kingdom and better glorify himself in you. That, that's what we're called to to do in those circumstances. We're called to press in further to God. We're called to trust him. And we can know deep joy even in the midst of them. The kind of joy that only comes from knowing God through Christ. Well, let's close. And as we do, uh, I'm going to turn this last little bit into a prayer. I think it'd be good for us to um, just close our eyes, bow our head and think about whatever circumstances you might be in and maybe we should change the way we pray and and, and pray something like this. Father God, instead of uh, make this go away and please come fix this, um, we want to pray differently this morning. We want to ask uh, for you to show us ways that we can um, see you at work in and through this situation. And we ask that you would give us your joy, a supernatural joy and a hope that helps us in the middle of this, in the midst of whatever it is we're in. Thank you, Jesus, uh, for suffering and dying on our behalf. Thank you for your life, your death, your resurrection. Thank you that they've secured forgiveness for all sins and their circumstances. We pray that you'd help us fix our eyes on you and show us opportunities to bear witness to you in the situations that we're in. Father, we pray this, not that we might look good and have a great testimony to tell one day, but that you would be glorified, that others, when they look upon us and they see the joy we have that comes from you, will ask questions, will want to know, will gain great, great strength, and themselves will continue uh, to proclaim, to preach, to speak, to share, to bear witness to the good news of Jesus, the gospel of your Son. And we pray these things in his name.